Okay, good evening. Tonight we're looking at the most critical question that any human faces. This is the question of what will decide your eternity. It seems to me a much more important question than uh, what will affect your life. Because if there is life after death and eternity does go on for eternity, you're going to be dead, you're going to be in the afterlife a lot longer than you're going to be alive. Now the way I see it, there's three possibilities. The first one is that God saves everyone. Everyone gets to go to the good afterlife. If that's the case, you can pretty much ignore the rest of this talk. Second possibility is that God is deciding who goes to heaven and who goes to hell completely apart from anything that we do. In which case, again, you can ignore the rest of this talk. But there's a third possibility, and that is that our actions will in some way affect where we spend our eternity. So which of these three options is it, first of all? First option, is everyone going to heaven? No. You know, as much as I would love for that to be true, the, the doctrine of hell is one of the most troubling aspects of Christianity. I would love for everyone to be saved. I didn't realize how terrible hell was until I started seriously considering the possibility that I could go there. Because as long as it was just something that other people went to, it was pretty easy to be calloused about the doctrine. But if you wake up in the night and you feel that terror, and wake up from a nightmare of Judgment Day, and you feel the horrible separation from God and the finality of it and you realize that there's a, a possibility that I could go to hell suddenly hell seems so terrible you know I, I would love to be able to stand up here and say that everyone will be saved but Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven but you know who wants everyone to be saved even more than any of us is God. God's not willing that any should perish, it says. We wouldn't mind if a few people went to hell. <laughs> God wants every person to be saved. We can't fathom God's great heart. But that does not change the fact that Jesus gave us such strict warnings about a terrible alternative to the blessed life. So, that's the first thing. Not everyone gets to go to heaven. The second option is that God chooses who goes to heaven, who goes to hell, completely apart from anything that we do. This also is not taught in Scripture. Jesus says that whosoever wills may come. All of Scripture acknowledges our free choice, our ability to affect our life. If you look at Deuteronomy, God said, here it is, two options are before you. The options of curse, the, the life full of curses brought about by your wrong choices, and the life of blessing brought, 
brought about by your right choices. All of scripture acknowledges our human choice. So, this brings us to the third option, that our actions will affect where we spend our eternity. Now, am I missing something, or is this the most important question that any person can wrestle with? It seems to me it's hands down the most important question. Now, the important thing to remember here is it doesn't matter what I say, and it doesn't matter what you say, and it doesn't matter what other religions say, because it's all human opinion. Who is the one who decides where we spend our eternity? It's God. So it's very important that we get this, that it's God who makes the decision. Well, what does God say about who gets to go to heaven and who gets to go to hell? Remember, people who say to me, as soon as a person says that, you can pretty much ignore, you can just listen to them, but you cannot look to them as an authority because heaven does not belong to them. I use the analogy that heaven is the God's house. And it'd be so, if you use the analogy of, if you as a homeowner, you would decide who gets to come into your house and who gets rejected. If you're watching 10 men debate out on your lawn, well, what do we got to do to get into this house? You're going to laugh at them because they're going about it the wrong way. They're not asking the homeowner. And in the same way, if we want to know how to get into heaven, we got to ask God's opinion. So what is that critical component that separates the blessed from the damned? Is it having enough good works? If that's the case, what is a passing grade? Is it 50-50? Do you have to have a 60-40 good deeds, bad deeds split? What's the passing grade? Is it having enough correct theology? If that's the case, what's the passing grade to get into heaven? On, is a, an 87 on a, a theology exam a passing grade? But an 86 on your theology exam a fail? Is it faith? Is faith the deciding factor? But if so, what is faith? Is faith a feeling of certainty? So does that mean on the days where you're doubting whether you're saved that you're not saved because you don't have that feeling of certainty? Is faith a blind, willful belief in something regardless of the evidence? What is faith? Is it faith? Is it works? Is it doctrine? What is the deciding factor? Let's look at scripture. Let's see what God says in his word. So first of all, we're going to look at passages that cite the importance of faith and belief. So look in these scriptures and try to figure out what is the deciding factor that is mentioned in these verses. John 5, 24. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. What's the deciding factor in this? Hearing his word and believing him. It's belief. John 6, 40. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Looking to Christ and believing in him. That's what it says in John 6.40. Acts 16.31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Romans 3.28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Here's a, a verbal confession that Christ is Lord and a believing in our heart of the truth of the resurrection. 
Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. So salvation is a gift. Galatians 2.16, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. Spells it out very clear. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Galatians 2.20, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Titus 3.5, He saved us not because of righteous things we've done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So when we look at those verses, it's pretty clear. The faith, the salvation is a gift, and it's one we receive, not by earning, but by a simple accepting, by faith. Pretty comforting. However, there's a lot of other verses that talk about salvation that are a little more sobering. Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What's the deciding factor in that verse? A person's actions. Matthew 12, 36 to 37, I tell you on the day of judgment, you will have to give an account for every careless word you utter, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Very sobering. What we say is going to affect whether we're justified or condemned. This is the parable of the sheep and the goats. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Does anybody remember what the deciding factor was between the sheep and the goats? The sheep were the ones who met Christ's needs who visited him in prison, who, and I don't want to be like the pastor who got it mixed up, and afterwards <laughs> his wife said, honey, I think you got it mixed up. We're supposed to clothe the naked and visit the sick, not the other way around. <laughs> so we're supposed to visit the naked and clothe the sick. Anyway, <laughs> minor slip up. Now the Great Commission is therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to, does it say believe everything? It says obey everything that I have commanded you. Romans 2, 6, 7, 13. For he will repay each according to, to each one's deeds. To those who by patiently doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. For it is not those who hear the law, who are just in the sight of God, rather those who observe the law that will be justified. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive recompense according to what he did in the body, whether good or evil. James 2.24, you see the person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Revelations 22.12 says, Behold, I am coming soon, and I bring with me the recompense I will give to each according to his deeds. So do you think our actions matter to God? Do you think our actions are going to affect our salvation? Absolutely. So th there's two very strong messages in Scripture. On the one, we're saved apart from our works. It's a free gift that we have received by faith. But there's also an equally strong message that our actions are going to affect where we spend our eternity. So what is 
this gift of salvation. It seems to me that if we want to know what, what must I do to be saved, we need to know what are we saved from. So what's our primary problem? Remember this morning we looked at it, it's, it's alienation from God. God is our source of life, goodness, purpose, beauty. We were designed to run on God, so to speak. Anybody who says, God make me happy apart from you, is asking for the impossible. Because God designed us to only be satisfied when we are in a relationship with him. A vehicle that says, that's designed to run on gasoline and says, sorry, I want, you can pour apple juice, you can pour oil, you can pour diesel down there, but I do not want gasoline. There is no way that vehicle is going to be, have life in it because it's refusing the only source of what can truly give it life. And any human that was rejecting God has been cut off from the very source of life. You know, this is what makes hell so horrible. Because hell is the place where God is not. Everything that we love about life comes from God. All of the five senses, all of the good gifts of music, of beauty, of sound, of touch, of taste, and the, the, the love, the physical attraction, all of these things are good gifts that God designed us. God designed for us to enjoy. But they belong to Him. They're His gifts. And He has the right to cut them or remove them. And that's what Scripture says sin is. It's the being cut off from God. That's the consequences of sin. It's spiritual death. It's not just that God says, boy, you know, sin looks so fun, but I'm going to be a, an old stodgy person and say, you can't enjoy those things. When God says, no, you can't do that, it's because he sees that it's a poison. He sees that it's going to hurt us. He sees that it's going to cut us off from him. So do you get this first part of it, that the only way that we can really enjoy life, the only way we can be satisfied, is to be in a right relationship with God. Now, along with this God being God, there's something that happens in the moral dimension in our life. When, God, when we are in a right relationship with God, who decides what is right and wrong? Is it us? Or is it God? Pretty easy question. God is the one who decides what is right and what is wrong. And that is a fundamental characteristic of what a right relationship looks like with God. God is God, we are not. Now what happened at the fall was that man said, I will be God, I will decide what is right and wrong. It's what Satan convinced Adam and Eve. You will be like God, knowing good from evil. In other words, you'll get to be the one who decides what is good and evil. And man, ever since, has adopted this state of rebellion against God that says, I will be the one who decides what is right and wrong. I will decide what I listen to. I will decide what I watch. I will decide the friends I have. I'm going to be the one who decides what is right and wrong. Now, when you adopt this pseudo-God position, you have cut yourself off from a saving relationship with God. When you are the moral leader, the moral lawgiver in your life, you are cut off from God. 
And this is what we've done. We've rebelled against God's authority. And this is what has made this world the terrible place and causes the terrible things that we see around us. I use the example of, a, of a traffic. You know, going through Portland, it's, it's quite an adjustment for a prairie boy who just lives in straight square roads and lines to go through all those interchanges and in bypasses and the heavy traffic there. Now, what would those traffic places be like if the driver said, I am going to ignore the rules of the road? This is going to be, I'm going to drive on these roads any way that I see fit. Those roads are going to be a nightmarish place to go. If people said, I'm going to ignore the traffic laws, I'm going to do what I want, traffic would be an absolute killer place to be. And that is what's happened in life. We have shaken our fist at God and said, I will be God. I'm going to follow my own rules. I'm going, to fo I'm going to make up my own rules for sex. I'm going to make up my own rules for food. I'm going to make up my own rules for relationships. And just like it, willful disobedience is going to ruin the flow of traffic and the system of life, when the traffic is totally ruined because of people's wrong choices, is the designer of the automobile at, at fault? Is the person who designed the roads at fault? No, it's the people who refuse to follow the rules. And when we look around at all the suffering that is inflicted on ourselves, all the consequences from sin, it's not the designer's fault. It's humanity saying, I'm going to live the way I want to live. So we're cut off from God. So our problem before we are saved is threefold. One, because we've rejected God's ownership, we've rejected God's moral authority, we are cut off from God and we feel guilty. Secondly, we've committed moral crimes that must be punished and we recognize this and this is where our guilt comes in. We don't want to be in God's presence, even though God's presence is the only thing that will satisfy us, the only thing that will empower us to live rightly. We don't want to be in God's presence because it makes us feel guilty. Third, we're in a state of rebellion and rebels must be quarantined. This is one of the chief reasons not everybody gets to go to heaven. Because if everybody went to heaven, heaven would soon become earth. People, us humans who have messed up this earth down here, would just continue to mess up the new creation. Rebels must be quarantined. So our primary problem is that we are separated from God, that we're cut off from Him. What's, our, what's the primary solution? What would it mean to be saved? It would be a restored relationship with God. If the problem that we're, if our problem is we're cut off from God, the solution is that we're going to be in a restored relationship with God. Now this morning we looked at the atonement and what God has done. He took the sins onto himself and he took them away so that we can come to God with a clear conscience. We can come to God by faith. One of the deciding factors is definitely, it's, it's faith where we trust God to restore us. We trust the finished work of Christ. We no longer look to our own deeds 
to earn God's favor, we trust what God has done and say, I accept the finished work of Christ. I accept the fact that Christ took away my sins and I come to you on the basis of what Christ has done, not on the basis of what I am done. Saving faith also acknowledges that I am helpless God without you. I need you so much. You're the only thing in my life that will satisfy you. You're the only thing that will empower me to be a good person. Saving faith says, I need you. Saving faith is, also, is so simple. But you know, Scripture also talks about repentance. In almost every evangelistic message in the Acts, repentance is one of the key things that people are required to do. What is repentance? See, if we had a mindset that said, I will be God, I am fine on my own, I don't need God, repentance means a complete change of mind. So saving faith, is the, repentance is this new change of mind that says, I am no longer the God of my life. I accept your claim to my life. I receive this restored relationship with you. And if there is going to be a restored relationship with God, what is going to change? See, so the problem before was you were God and God was God. In the restored relationship, what needs to happen? One of you needs to stop being God. And it's not going to be God who stops being God. So if you receive a restored relationship with God, what is going to happen? There's going to be a change in the moral order of your life. You are going to acknowledge God's authority in your life, God's claim to your life. You see how we're not saved by works, but that if you are truly saved, there will be a moral life change and there will be works to back it up. See, for so often, people have taught salvation as simply a free ticket that God gives to people who say the sinner's prayer. And if you take this ticket, you put it in your hip pocket, you've got fire insurance, you're covered, you're good. You got this free ticket and that's all that matters. That is such a shallow version of salvation. Some, salvation is so much more than just a barcode that gets put on you. And when you get to the pearly gates, you get this barcode scan, saved, you're good. No, when you're saved, you receive a reconciled relationship with God. It's a wonderful gift, but when you are saved, God is now the God of your life. Do you see how when you look at salvation like that, there's no faith versus works. F saving faith is incredibly simple. It says, God, save me. You don't have to have your theology perfect. You look at the thief on the cross, his theology would have been totally messed up on the areas of the Trinity, on the deity of Christ, but he sensed something in Christ. He sensed his authority. The sinner on the cross didn't even get the sinner's prayer right. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Simple saving faith, and Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Saving faith is as simple as a baby cry, saying, God save me. It's a completely free gift. It's nothing we have to do to earn. The whole idea, and this is what separates Christ from all the other moral teachers, is other teachers came to place to tell us how to live, to place more burdens on our life. 
Christ came to save us because it was obvious that we couldn't do it ourselves. Christ came to save us. So saving faith is as simple as a baby's crying, saying, God, save me. I'm yours. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. However, saving faith has a very costly element to it. And this is why Jesus told the parable, and he said to count your cost. The, the parable of the man who, who needed to make sure there was enough money in his bank account before he started building the house. Make sure you have enough money to finish the job. He also told the story of a, a king who, when he goes out to war, he makes sure he has enough men to finish the job of what he's conquering. And Jesus' point was, do you want to follow me? Do you want to be saved? Count the cost. Because as simple as it is, as much as it's a free gift to be received, it's an incredibly costly gift in that it will cost us our life. It will cost us our little self-imposed deity. It will cost us our idols. It'll be very costly because when we receive that, when we are saved, when we receive salvation, God is our God and that requires a repentance, a change of mind that sets aside the idols, that sets aside our own claim to be to deity, and humbly accepts God's moral claim on your life. So saving faith is very simple, but it's very costly. Being saved is having a restored relationship with God. And you know, I want to make it so clear that the reason part of us rankles at the idea of surrendering to God's authority is because we do not fully understand who God is. Because from the moment of the fall, Satan has been lying to us about the goodness of God. Satan is telling us, you do not want to surrender to his lordship, because he'll have nothing but misery and deprivation. He wants to see you miserable. Trust me on this, guys. God wants to see you miserable. Come to me, and I'll show you the good time. I, have, I don't have these rules. You can enjoy life that whatever you want, but Satan is the master liar. You know, it's God who invented pleasure. It's God who wants to see you find satisfaction in life. It's God who wants to bless you and reward you. Satan hates your guts. Satan wants to destroy you. Satan wants to see you enslaved and addicted and miserable. He's lying to you people. Anytime you think that surrender to God's ways is going to be misery, you are buying Satan's lies. Because God's rules are for our pleasure. Just like a sports car. When I talk about purity to young people, I use this example. It comes with some pretty strict rules. It's a gasoline engine. You can't put diesel in the engine. You gotta make sure the oil levels are topped up. You gotta keep air in the tires. You gotta follow the rules of the road. And any person who says, man, those rules are so restrictive. This is my sports car. I'm gonna do with it as I want. I'm gonna put diesel in the engine. I'm gonna drain the oil. The vehicle will not run properly. It will be destroyed. True freedom is found in the empowering surrender to God's rules, to God's way of life. God wants you to embrace life, to have life abundantly, but it requires a restored relationship with Him. That's why a restored relationship with Him is truly a gift. 
because we find such incredible satisfaction and peace and empowering. We're actually empowered. A lot of people, they know how they should live, but they can't do it. They don't have the power to do it. Well, when you have the restored relationship with God, you're empowered to do it. I want to spend the rest of this talk breaking this down. What I gave you was basically a gospel message. But how do you break this down in sharing the gospel with your friends? I want to boil the gospel down to four main points. This is what sharing the gospel means. It doesn't mean giving it this to them all at once, but it means helping people, conversation by conversation, come to see the truth about God, about us, about Christ, and about our response, what is needed if we want to be saved. So the first message is a message of God. We need to proclaim that God is our creator. God is not just something in the periphery of our lives where we're free to choose whatever we want. See, that's the message. Because people's worldview is that we are just rearranged sludge, a cosmic accident, people think that they are free to define God any way that they choose. They can picture God as a grandfather. They can picture God as a she. They can picture God as a, a pantheon of gods. To them, they can say, to me, God is this. This is what makes me happy. And the response you're supposed to give them is, well, that may be true for you, but that's not true for me. But the thing is, there is a true, objective God who exists apart from whatever goes little fantasy we have on inside of our mind. There is a real God who created us. There's a God who has a moral claim on our life. We need to be bold in our sharing with people because we're not just selling an optional product. We're letting people know that God created them and God has a rightful claim to their life. The gospel will not make sense until they first understand God's claim to their life. We need to explain that God's the moral lawgiver. You know, people everywhere you go have this strong sense of things should not be the certain way, certain things we should do, certain things we should not do. Atheists I get a kick out of because they have their moral Ten Commandments, thou shalt be pro-choice, thou, thou shalt not impose your religion on other people. And these are gospel truths to them. These are truths worth dying for that they get so upset for and want to fight for. Human rights to be godless. But think about it from an atheist worldview, where does this sense where do these rights come from? Remember, in the atheist worldview, we're just a cosmic accident. There's no law above nature for the way things should be for the atheist to point to. The only thing the atheist can point to is his own tastes in life. But an atheist doesn't want you to realize that he's just saying, he's not saying when he's against the ban on gay marriage, he doesn't want to say, well, it's just my personal taste that I think gays should be allowed to marry. No, he wants to point to an objective, and by objective I mean outside of us, law that he points to that he thinks everybody should obey. But in the atheist worldview, there is no law that is above humanity. It's one of the strongest proofs for God. Is there an objective morality? 
And if so, it can only come from a person. It has to come from an absolute person. See, in the Christian worldview, we have a basis for morality. It's rooted in God's character. It's in the fact that there is an absolute person who says, these things are right, these things are wrong. This person is outside of nature. He gives us a blueprint for the way things should be. It makes sense. Morality makes sense in a, in a Christian worldview. But in an atheistic worldview, they want to have their morality, but there's no standard, there's no basis for it. I'm going to be getting into that in future talks. That's some pretty deep level philosophy that hopefully as I re repeat it, it will sink in a little more. But the point is that there is a moral standard and that whenever people acknowledge that there's some things are wrong, they're acknowledging that there's a God. And you know, for all people's talk about right and wrong, it should kind of scare them that we do some things wrong. Like there's a possibility of punishment, possibility of consequences. But we need to also not just tell people about God's anger at sin that we talked about this morning. We need to talk about the goodness of God. Because Satan has been the one lying to them about God their whole life. People need to hear about the goodness of God, about God's love, about God's wisdom, about his power. So that is the message. The first thing we need to help the unbeliever see is that God is the moral lawgiver, that God is their creator who has a claim to their life, and that God is so beautiful and so desirable. And we need to live our lives in a way that they see that we're in love with God, that we see the beauty of God, that we're satisfied by God. Our lives should be markedly different than the lives around them because we should be drinking deeply from the well of God's goodness. And it's something I struggle to do. Sometimes I drink deeply of it. Other times, I let myself wallow in godlessness, in despair, in anxiety, in guilt, in fear. When I've got this abundant life available to me, I need to, to really drink deeply of that. So the first point of the gospel is the message of who God is. The next point is a message about who man is. You know, man is incredibly noble, and man is incredibly depraved. And it's quite an enigma to an anthropologist, especially an atheistic anthropologist, why is man, on the one hand, so incredibly gifted, can produce amazing works of art? He has a quality of life that is completely different from any one of the other animals. Man has an ability to write poetry, write music, to taste, to cook, to enjoy life. Man has an incredible nobility. But man also performs some of the most despicable, heinous acts that would put the animal kingdom to shame. To say man acts like an animal, some of the things he does is really an insult to the animal kingdom. Because some of the horrible things that man does are just plain old unspeakable. So how do we get this? How do we have man that is so noble and man so disgusting? See, the Christian worldview has an answer for that. That man was created in the image of God. That every human life has incredible value, not because of the person has made up a self-esteem fantasy about themselves, but because everything that God creates, he loves and has incredible value to him. 
we have incredible worth and every human has worth to God, not because that person earned it, but because God created that person. But God also made us free. He gave us free choice. We have free will. It's a philosophical question. I'm not even sure the animals have free will. In order to have free will, we need to have a soul. We need to have... You see, some people say man is just a machine. Put your philosophy caps on for a while. Some people say man is just a machine. But if man is just a machine, if man is just a computer, man does not really have free will. It's just following the, the programming of nature, following the input. If I drop this remote, it's going to follow the laws of nature. No one is going to call this an immoral remote because it didn't have free choice in the fall. There's something, though, about humanity that we think humans have free choice, that they're praiseworthy and they're blameworthy, that they actually have a choice. But in order for them to have a choice, they have to have an immaterial thing that is choosing between competing inputs. See, a computer does not have an immaterial side. A computer will ever only do what it is programmed to do, flat out. But if man is just a glorified machine, just a glorified computer, man is simply doing whatever nature has programmed it to do. Whatever a speaker programs you, you to do, whatever the state programs you to do. And that's what an atheist says, that man is just a machine. But Christianity says that no, man is created in the image of God and has a soul and has free will. And along with this free will comes a responsibility, comes an accountability to God, and each one of us is going to stand before God someday and give an account of what we did with our free will. God is going to be so merciful, he's going to take into account all of our challenges, all of our disabilities, our economic status, how our parents treat us. God's going to take that into account. But he is going to judge us, and to whom much has been given, much will be required. So man has free will, and man has taken this free will and is in rebellion, and the consequences of this rebellion are seen everywhere. And along with this rebellion has come an addiction to sin, an enslavement to the powers of evil, that we're cut off from God and we're enslaved to sin. And sadly, our default setting is now of godlessness. God right now is giving us a grace period where even though we are cut off from God, God is still letting us enjoy his good gifts. He's still letting us enjoy his common grace. But someday when death is the final choice, the final separation, God is going to honor our choice. And that'll be the most terrible thing that can happen to a person. It's going to come down to two types of people. Those, like C.S. Lewis said, the people who said, God, thy will be done. And the people to whom God says, okay, thy will be done. And it's a terrible thing for God to let us have our own way. To be cut off from God. Do you see our predicament and how terrible it is that we're addicted to sin, that we're doing things we don't understand? People are choosing sin, but they're doing things that are just, they're watching themselves self-destruct. 
Women who have a cycle of abusive boyfriends, they don't understand it, but they keep going back to that same perverted, polluted well. They keep getting abused by this. It's because sin is deceptive. Sin is destructive. That's the second point. So that we have this message of God, His holiness, His goodness, His claim on our life. The second point is us, our rebellion against God, the fact that we're addicted to sin, and that we're slowly headed for a godless eternity unless something changes. The third point of the gospel is the message of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to bring atonement. I don't know if it's true or not, but apparently Wycliffe was looking for a word that meant at one minute, and he just made the word atonement. So atonement means at one minute, where there was a great divide between man and God. There is now at one minute through the cross. There's reconciliation, but Jesus came. He brought his teaching. Jesus brought atonement at one minute through his teaching. He taught us what a restored relationship with God will look like. He taught us what things will sever a relationship with God. Things like lust, envy, greed, covetousness, unforgiveness. He said these are the things that are going to separate your relationship with God. He showed us what the relationship, a restored relationship between humans will look like. It will be one of service, one of joy, tenderness, and, and complete forgiveness. Jesus brought, he, Jesus taught, he proclaimed the rule of God. This is exciting stuff, that where once we were under the powers of Satan and con, in chains to continually self-destruct, God is proclaiming his rule, which is going to bring, which is going to bring police, <laughs> peace, shalom. So, this is good news. You see, God is doing something amazing. He is, re he is going to recreate this heaven and earth, and he's going to populate it, fill it, with people who during this life have repented of their claim to be God and said, I want to be God, I want to live my life for you. What God is doing now is sending out advanced scouts and offering people a free pardon free citizenship in the kingdom of God. And it's an exciting thing to accept that someday we will have a kingdom on earth where humanity is completely reconciled to God, where families function like they should, where relationships are not severed by self-centeredness. <clears throat> Jesus also, another part of the gospel message is we need to proclaim his death. Because in his death is this tremendous offer of the forgiveness of sins. That we do not have to feel guilty when we enter God's presence. That if we accept his forgiveness at the cross, we can stand free and with a completely clear conscience. We need to talk about his resurrection. His resurrection, Jesus did not just let sin take sin onto himself and let sin destroy him. He also restored his body as a sign that he will restore us. You know, God's justice includes restoration. George MacDonald wrestled with this concept of justice. He said, if a man steals my watch, I'm out of watch. Now, justice, if justice just prescribes a beating for the man who 
steals my watch. Has justice really been served? I'm still out of watch. But complete justice, according to his argument, would include the watch be restored. And this is what is the message of the resurrection, is that we will be restored. You know, the Jews who went through their terrible suffering in the Holocaust, the children who have been molested, the young women who have been raped, it won't be just enough to have Hitler burning in hell or for the woman to see her rapist burning in hell. That's not just enough to see that person suffering. That's a shallow view of justice. For justice to be restored, justice means restoration. It means that God is going to heal the rape victim's wounds, heal the person's memory, heal their, their body, and restore them. You see how God is not just a vengeful God who is, going, who is looking at all the evil in this world and is just going to bring another form of punishment. He also wants to restore whoever will come to him. That's the message of the resurrection. We die with Christ, but it doesn't end there. We are raised with Christ to newness of life. And then Jesus gave us his Holy Spirit. You know, I said how Jesus forgave us. He gave us teachings about how to live, but he didn't leave it at that. If he had left it at that, we'd still be struggling along with our sins. Jesus didn't die to just save us from the punishment from our sins. Scripture says he died to save us from our sins themselves. And when we have our sins forgiven, we can be reconciled to God. And when we're reconciled to God, we can have his power living in us. It's God's Holy Spirit that enables us to live, to overcome our addictions, to overcome the power of sin, to live the way God wants us to live. And the final message about Christ, we need to proclaim his lordship. Jesus said the Great Commission was, teach these nations to obey all that I've commanded. Any gospel message that does not mention the claim of Christ or the need for obedience to his lordship is not the complete gospel. So we've got God, we've got our problem, who man is, we've got the message of Christ. Finally, we have our response. John Stott says it's very important that we preach faith and repentance. That if you ever teach one without the other, it's going to lead to a perversion of the gospel. Because if you just teach faith, people are going to think it's a cheap gospel, that all we have to do is accept this ticket or slap on this barcode. It won't acknowledge the truly radical life change that has to happen. Scripture talks about a new birth. So, all of a sudden, a saved person has God's life living in them. Have you ever pondered the difference between a corpse and a living being? All the equipment's still there in the corpse, but it's dead. There's life, and that's the analogy that God uses. You should, know, you should not be a spiritual corpse. You should have God's spirit, God's life in you that you receive by faith. But if you... But you also need to preach repentance. Because this repentance, we need a total mind change that acknowledges God's lordship of our life, acknowledges his moral authority. But see, if you just preach repentance without faith, it seems it'd be so tempting to slip into legalism where you're just heaping burdens on people, giving them, oh, you mean, 
I have to forgive people. I have to go the second mile. I can't even look what last. Oh man, life just got a whole lot harder. We need to faith in the power of God and repentance that acknowledges. So this kind of raises the question, can a person lose their salvation? If this salvation is a restored relationship with God, see, if you, if you conceive salvation just as getting a ticket, it seems to be pretty certain that, well, nothing's going to snatch this ticket from my hands, so I'm never going to lose my salvation. So can you lose your salvation? Scripture makes it very clear that anybody who has truly received salvation will not lose it. However, Scripture also warns us that it's possible to, ha to think you're saved when you're not really saved. To have bought into a false idea, having a false conversion. And we're supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. To be diligent to examine our lives. Are we bearing the fruits of the Spirit? Or is our life markedly different? Am I really surrendered to God's Lordship in my life? These are tough questions. And if you look at your life and you do not like what you see, my point is not that you just start trying harder to live a good life. This, that's legalism. It's still trying to live life apart from God and it still has the same effect as someone who says, God, I don't need you. Legalism says, I don't need your grace, God. I can be good enough on my own strength. Salvation, saving faith, says I can't be good enough on my own. I failed today, so I'm not going to just try harder next day. I want to receive a fresh filling of your love, a fresh understanding of your forgiveness, a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. I need your empowering. And it's that simple, save me God, I'm yours. It's so simple. But it's so costly. I'd encourage each one of you to really wrestle with this question. Who is the God of your life? Because maybe you have this idea of salvation as just a ticket that you got when you prayed the sinner's prayer. But you need to ask yourself, do you have a reconciled relationship with God? And if you do, your life will be different. This is not to heap more burdens on you. John says his burdens are not cumbersome. They're not a pain. His commands are not a burden. Jesus said his burden is light. God wants to be there empowering you to live the way he calls you to live. But it doesn't change the fact that you still need to live the way that God wants you to live. This means, this means finding victory in your sexual temptations. It means finding victory over bitterness. Finding victory over anxiety. Something I struggle with so much since I've become a dad. It means fully embracing God's life. And this type of true Christianity is something that you need to continue to pursue. There's warnings all through Hebrews about letting yourself get apathetic about the faith. So, in summary, saving faith is receiving a reconciled relationship with God. 
But when God, when there is a restored relationship with God, God is going to be God, you're not going to be God. It's very simple. It's as simple as a baby's cry, but it's very costly because it will demand that you be crucified with Christ. You know, baptism is a picture. Baptism is not what saves us, but it's a picture of what we must go through in order to be saved. Baptism, you are you go underwater. You are acknowledging that you are crucified with Christ. But then you're raised to newness of life. In order to be saved, we need to be crucified with Christ. Just read the book of Romans. Study the book of Romans. We need to crucify that part of us that was saying, I will be God. That person that is not letting God be the God of your life. We need to put ourselves on the cross with Christ and be crucified with him. Die to our sin nature. Die to our idols. Die to our claim to live our own life the way we see. And when you do that, God will raise you to a newness of life. And it will be a good life. God's life is so good. Anytime, I remember the teen years, continue now. Whenever I'd read holiness preachers talk about surrender, giving things up, it all just seemed like misery because I'm continually buying the lie that God is not good. So the gospel is good news. It's the life we've always wanted. It's the life we long for. It's the life we would choose if we could really understand it. It's a free gift. What Christ is offering us is something to be excited about. But there will be a time of godly sorrow. It is going to hurt. Self, that willful self, is not going to go easily. It's going to go kicking and screaming. So I've, I've given you a lot of information today. I really want you guys to search the scriptures to see if these things are true. My opinion is, is not what matters. I really think that this is the clear picture of what salvation really is. And when I see salvation this way, there's no controversy between faith and works. I see how we receive that res restored relationship with God as a free gift that we cannot earn God's favor. We cannot say enough Hail Marys. We cannot crawl over enough broken glass. We receive it as a free gift. But once you receive that gift, there will be a mind change. There will be new life. There will be a complete change in your life. Thank you, guys.